My name is Anna, and in July, I was diagnosed with hairy cell leukemia, a rare, slow-going blood cancer of the B cells. In October, I flew to Washington, D.C. to participate in a clinical trial at the NIH, combining cladribine, the standard of care drug for HCL, with rituximab, a monoclonal antibody that is more successful at getting rid of minimal residual disease. I rented an apartment in D.C. for five weeks so that I could get treated without having to fly back and forth across the country while my counts were at their lowest. On November 12th, I headed back to Los Angeles. It was a weird feeling. I had been really looking forward to coming home, but I definitely hadn't factored in what it would feel like to do so just a few days after the election. All my fears and worries came home with me. But it was nice to be back around my own community. The last week in DC had felt especially isolating. I jumped right into socializing as soon as I got home. I saw my boyfriend and family, and then I went out to a bar for my two best friends' joint birthday party. That was probably a bit of a risk considering my counts are still low, but I overcompensated by compulsively cleaning my hands with a little bottle of hand sanitizer that I took everywhere. On November 14th, I saw my cousins, which was lovely. I went grocery shopping by myself. Everything I was doing felt really ordinary, but also kind of momentous like the first steps back to my normal life after a weird hiatus. On November 16th, my mom and I flew back to DC for my sixth Rituxan treatment. It was a full day of travel. We left LA at 7 a.m. and didn't get to our hotel until 9 p.m. My mom doesn't travel much, so I think it was kind of fun for her. And thankfully, the restaurant at the hotel was still open, so we had a nice meal before going to sleep. November 17th, up bright and early to head to the NIH for treatment. It was the usual routine, blood tests, then going up to the day hospital to get the Rituxan infusion. They gave me my pre-meds, which are Tylenol, Benadryl, and Zyrtec, and then we had to wait half an hour before getting the IV hooked up. The actual Rituxan infusion was fine. I slept through most of it. We got my blood test results back before we left, and unfortunately, my white blood counts were at 1.1 and absolute neutrophil count was at 0.6, meaning they hadn't changed since the previous week. That was discouraging. When I started the treatment, I was told that most patients have their counts nearly back to normal by the sixth week. I talked to my doctor about it, and he said it can take a while sometimes, that it's still within the normal range of response, and we'll have more information about what's going on when my bone marrow biopsy results come back in a week or so. My nurse said it might be taking me longer to bounce back because my tumor burden was greater than that of the average patient when they start treatment. So this is a note to other HCL patients out there. There's a lot to be said for waiting and watching until you have to treat, but it's also not a good idea to wait too long. You're at a greater risk of infection the lower your counts are, and recovery can take longer. We left the hospital and took the shuttle to the airport and got on a flight back to LA. The next two weeks will be more of the same. I'll fly out on a Tuesday or a Wednesday, get treated, and fly back home. Rinse, wash, repeat. HCL patients are lucky in that most of us respond well to the available treatments, but there's no denying that it's a serious disease, and there have definitely been points when it brought death and mortality to the front of my mind. Back in August, a few weeks after I was diagnosed, I talked to my brother Artaban, and he asked if I was scared. I said, yeah, it was really scary getting the diagnosis, and then he asked, why was I scared? I hadn't really thought to question that before, and it helped jostle me out of my head a bit. I tend to have pretty interesting conversations about this stuff with Art, so I asked him to join me on the podcast today to chat. If you're just listening for the day-to-day updates on how I'm doing, you can feel free to skip the rest of the episode and join me next week.
if you'd be interested in listening to us ramble about different ways of thinking about death, I think this is actually a surprisingly fun conversation and would recommend listening on. Here's Art. My name is Artovan. I make video games. I'm a game designer. Um, have been for a little over five years. Cool. Thanks for joining me. <clears throat> so I remember at some point you showed me the movie Predator, like way before all of this. And you were like, this movie's pretty significant to me <laughs> in ways that might not be uh, all that <laughs> readily. Um, I don't know, does, doesn't necessarily hit you about the movie, but like, I thought it was kind of interesting and we started our conversation last time with this, so. I don't know what you mean. Why are you doubting Predator? It's a <laughs> modern cinema classic. Yeah. Some of the best Schwarzenegger I guess, lines. I guess this isn't the best time to confess to you that I like kind of slept through that whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> I was like half asleep and don't actually remember anything that happens in that movie, but. Well, what are we doing here? Stop the podcast. Let's go watch Predator. <laughs> It's like a movie about a monster, right? You saw it as a kid? It's a movie about a hunter from another planet, and uh, he comes to Earth and just basically finds a bunch of... Uh, creates a scenario where a bunch of commandos come to South America and he decides to hunt them from sport. And there isn't really much in terms of reasoning with it. Um, it, it just wants to hunt and kill for sport. So to me... That was, I mean, I saw it when I was very young and in USSR somehow. It was subtitles and stuff. I remember I was like, I must have been, I don't know, maybe five or something. And I was scared. There was like all these people dying. I was hiding behind pillows and stuff. But, you know, like I couldn't look away. And it was, it's a scary movie, but it's mostly an action movie. And I think anyone who watches it when they're old enough, you know, 15, 18, whatever, will just see it as... A standard action movie but at the time I saw it as this terrifying thing like it made me afraid of the dark for the longest time long story short I mean it was this this thing that had come to kill a bunch of people and there was no stopping it and uh, it basically was just this like my first just sort of fear of death experience mm -hmm. and it was the kind of thing where it's like there's no getting away from it if this thing happens you're going to die so, you know, like it made me scared of the dark. It just made me, you know, just afraid of death and made me think of dying a lot. And it just started this weird thing where like, you know, I was, I was very young and I just didn't know like how to process this. So, you know, at some point, like I just started sort of like praying, like, man, I hope, I hope I don't die to this. Like, I hope this thing doesn't happen. This thing doesn't come and kill like, you know, me and everyone I know. And started praying like you know please don't let this happen and then it kind of very quickly turned into um like please don't let me die at all like mm. basically praying for immortality and you know over time this sort of turned into like well you know if i if if i don't die and and you know my parents my brothers you know my family they die like that's that's terrible that's just as bad and you weren't born then but yeah basically just like slowly started like praying for God, please make me immortal and make my parents and my brothers immortal. And that just went from there. Then it was like my cousins. And it was like all of a sudden, like you just start feeling guilty about like everyone you're leaving out. Then all of a sudden, like, you know, before I know, this went on for a while. This went on for, you know, months, maybe like a year, maybe longer. I don't remember where I was just basically like praying to become immortal and like enumerating like 
everyone I knew, <laughs> you know, to be like, please don't let any of these people die either. And at some point, like, I just stopped. It, it just, just thinking about it so much, something about just like the sheer work of it, the sheer like, just like the amount of trouble it took to sort of ask for this thing and, you know, how ridiculous it was. Immediately just started, eventually started feeling like unnecessary and ridiculous and it was like I was just trying to get away from a thing that was natural that I'd just kind of come to terms with. And yeah, I really haven't been afraid of dying since then. And it's it's strange to say, I mean, obviously like that hasn't been tested. It's not like I've been in very many near-death situations, but I think that's still true. And I think a lot of it just came from like thinking about it. I think a lot of people just avoid the topic. They don't think about it. So it's this weird unknown thing that they have no real developed thoughts about. And I think if you think about it, it becomes eventually a, a less scary thing. Mm -hmm. um, and the reason I say that movie, like, you know, well, I mean, it was just, I think any scary movie any good scary movie, I don't know if it was if a dumb scary movie might not have done that, but any like half decent scary movie that stuck would have probably made me go through that whole thing. But the reason I say it, it changed like or shaped a lot of the way I see things is because once you say you're not afraid of dying, then a lot of a lot of things follow where it kind of changes what you care about. And what do you mean? What is what follows? Well, I think I think. A lot of people go through life sort of driven by fear and, and self-preservation and death is sort of like the end of everything that you sort of have, every material thing certainly that you've, you've sort of built in your life. Every scary thing that could happen to you ends when you die. So if you're not afraid of that, then most of the things that could happen to you, most of the sort of scary things that could happen to you really aren't that scary because a little bit later you'll just die and yeah. it'll be okay. Like you don't have to, you know, you know, like you don't have to sort of s keep that with you. And I think people just, just out of fear of death and all the things leading up to death, they let fear drive a lot of their decisions and a lot of their thoughts. But... I mean, it's weird to think of it as this thing that you're not willing to, to think about directly, but you think around it and all these other things turn into these super complicated structures where, you know, like like I did when I was a kid, I built this whole structure of like, well, to, I'm afraid of death, so to like avoid death, then I have to sort of pray for this, yeah. and then once you pray for this, it's like, well, I have to pray for this and this and this, and then it's like, you know, you go very quickly from... I don't want to die to I don't want anyone around me to die to I don't want to be hurt and live my whole life without an arm or a leg or something to and it's it's just this whole tower of fears that you just build over this foundation of like a fear of death and without that I think you can just ask yourself much more clearly what you care about rather than what you're afraid of. Well, it's interesting. Like for me like death is a pretty strong motivator. I talked about this earlier on in the podcast, but it still stands after everything I've been through so far that like the worst part of this whole thing was that first phone call about probably have leukemia. Because that was like the most like instinctual, like irrational reaction I had. After every after that, I was already kind of rationalizing everything. 
but with some distance from it. But that was, yeah, that was really intense. That was scary. And I still don't really know why, like, it was such an intense reaction. Because I guess my, my immediate reaction was hearing leukemia that that meant I was going to have a shorter life expectancy. I didn't know immediately. I didn't know, like, know exactly what that meant in terms of how much time that would be. But I just started thinking, like, well, to be honest, I pretty pretty quickly started thinking, like, man, I've wasted a lot of time doing, like, stuff that wasn't that interesting or that I wanted to do. Yeah. I don't think about death that often. I know other people who talk about how they think about death a lot, but thinking about it at that time, it was kind of like, well, okay, I should, like, figure out what I want to do. Yeah, well, I mean, time is obviously the most valuable resource any of us have. And I think a really important thing to to not lose track of is that balance is really important. Like, I think probably not being afraid of death, I'm a little bit more wasteful of time than I should be. At the same time, I'm very protective of my time. But I think it's important to sort of, like, strike a balance where you're not obsessive to the point of, like, pushing people away and you know, driving yourself crazy, but you do value it appropriately. And I mean, just do the things you actually care about doing. I mean, there's a lot of things that we all want to do that take a long time and that have a uh, an expensive sort of like startup cost that it's very hard to sort of take that first step. But if you really want to do it, it's important to value the time and be aware that you only have so much of it and do those things. So, I mean, it's natural, I guess, to, in any kind of big event to think about whether you wasted your time or, you know, even if you go all the way down a certain road and it doesn't bear fruit, you just, you know, you always think like, man, I've wasted all this time and stuff. And, you know, you have to, you have to give yourself a break because you didn't know which where it was going to go. The only thing any of us can do really is make the best decision we can in the moment with the information we have and... Don't forget that limitation when we go back to criticize. Because, I mean, you know, you're not perfect. You need to criticize yourself, but at the same time, you know, do it clearly, do it fairly. Yeah, well, it's kind of interesting because it seems like basically nothing that's a one-liner is all that real or true. (laughs) Like, uh, you know, live each day like your last, kind of, but you also need to, like, plan for the future and make some practical decisions and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things where I don't think you can spend your entire life questioning your entire life because a lot of things take more than a day to do. And if every single day you're like questioning everything, you probably won't get very far. I think sometimes it's important to decide on something, spend a couple weeks, couple months, sometimes even a couple of years just doing it, seeing where it takes you and I guess then the tricky part is once you've done it for a while, you know, it's hard to to step back and question it. But, you know, you can absolutely drive yourself crazy just kind of questioning yourself all the time and doubting yourself all the time. Like, sometimes you just got to make bets and, and, you know, see where it takes you. Yeah, I mean, um, one thing I've been thinking about a lot and we'll probably continue thinking about is like what... If, if you can, to some extent, control, like, what are the lessons you learn from things that happen in your life? Like, what are what are actually good lessons I could take from this? Like, uh, there's this book, Parable of the Sower. Have you heard of it? No. Octavia Butler is one of my favorite um, authors. She's, like, a black lesbian sci-fi writer. 
whose work is actually really prescient in terms of some of the stuff that basically predicts about a lot of stuff that's going on in the world right now. And um, she died several years ago, and she wrote this, this book, Parable of the Sower, in the 90s. And it's about, the, uh, it's about how in California there's a futuristic world that's like climate change has gotten so bad that all of Southern California is basically uninhabitable. And people have gotten like really violent and competitive because of that. And so it's actually kind of cool if you're like, if you live in California, I mean, it's really dark, but to read it because a big part of the book is the main characters walking up the five freeway to try to get to Northern California. That's cool. Yeah. Because they think that it's going to be more habitable and like a more peaceful place to live. Turns out there's like problems in Northern California too. The uh, lead character grows up in like this walled community and her father is a Christian reverend, but she doesn't, she has like, since she was a kid, she kept journals and stuff and she, she sort of started conceptualizing her own religion and the whole through line of the book is that she ends up being like this messianic figure, religious figure that people sort of flock around and her whole religion is called Earthseed and the concept of it is that humans are seeds that are destined to take root amongst the stars. So basically like it's a whole ideological and religious system that um, is meant to sort of like push people to colonize other planets because otherwise they won't survive if they stay on Earth. And uh, anyway, <laughs> I got a little off track. It's a really interesting book. <laughs> <But> <laughs> the other precept of her religion that I've been thinking about is this idea that God is change, like the only constant in the universe is change. Basically, like if you grow up in a, if if you grow up in the way that that character grew up in the world that she that was that she was living in the world that was basically dying, and I think what we're going through in our generation is not quite that, but it's certainly like a time of like really rapid transformation. We don't really know what's gonna what the world's gonna be like in like 20, 30 years. This idea that like you have to be like really um, flexible with what happens because things can just change really rapidly. That's a general thought about society, I guess, but for myself, I've just been thinking about like, all right, well, it's really good to learn the lesson that to not get too attached to the way you think your life is because things can just change really rapidly, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think it's weird living in the United States because everyone just thinks like the country is absolutely stable, that no matter what, America will just be strong, will be around, and... Some people, you know, lose jobs, find jobs, industries change, but the fact that we're still, like, you know, we consider something like, you know, 5% unemployment or 8% unemployment high is just a sign of just how stable everyone expects America to be. But, I mean, we grew up in Armenia, in the USSR, and everyone felt the same way. Everyone felt that, like, the USSR was stable. I mean, Russia had been around for a lot longer than the United States has. Yeah, that's interesting. and when that changed, I mean, it was a shock to everyone. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's not to say that, like, I expect some kind of economic calamity to happen to the United States, but I just don't think, I mean, the Depression wasn't that long ago. The Civil War wasn't that long ago. This country just hasn't been around that long. Yeah. And I don't think you can take that kind of stuff for granted. Um, so either way, and I mean, you know, even, even all that stuff aside, like industries 
appear and disappear and you know we're looking at the next 50 years a lot of things are going to change yeah so you have to be flexible and the fact that everyone sort of feels comfortable um is not i mean we experienced that it's not a sign that it will be stable just like the the widespread thinking that things are stable doesn't isn't any kind of sign or guarantee that they are or will be stable as far as the phrase god of change let me start off just by saying I'm not that well educated when it comes to um, philosophy or anything like that. These are just kind of my personal, you know, observations, and I don't pretend to have any kind of concrete thing to sort of teach anyone. This is just my opinion mm-hmm. on a lot of this stuff. Um, but it seems to me that um, that the concept of God has served a lot of things through human history and one of them one of them is a marker of where society stands and is headed in the time that you know people are making these statements there were times when when god was a, a farmer deity you know something responsible for growth there were times where god was a war deity to different cultures and a lot of that just stems to the state of society in which those stories came out of right so i think I think the book that you described is basically in hand with that yeah, way yeah, of looking at yeah. things. Um, but I do think it's interesting to talk about God, you know, relative to death. I think there are a few major ways of looking at God and what happens after death and things like that. And not to, you know, group too many of them together, but I know there, there are many, many differences, but just from far away scale without looking at too much details, without knowing that much about any specific religion because I don't profess to. Um, I think there's the scientific view, which is that life is all there is. When you die, that's it. There's nothing, there's just blackness. Um, There's religions where God tells you these are the way that things are and life is sort of a test um, if you follow the rules, then you'll get into, you know, the good place. If you don't follow the rules, then you'll go to some kind of purgatory where you're tortured for not having followed the rules. And the whole thing is basically a test of faith. And there are a few major religions where they have different rule sets, and it's very easy for each religion to sort of say, well, all other religions are sort of a test of your faith. And, you know, you have to, sticking to the true religion is the test here. And the whole thing is laid out as kind of a challenge. And you just have to pass. Like, you have to accept whatever into your heart. You have to accept these rules, follow these rules. And if you do, then you'll be graded based on those rules. And either you'll go to heaven or to hell or, you know, some version Mm -hmm. of that. Then there are religions where the goal is some kind of breakthrough. Where the goal is to... It's like you're trapped in this sort of cycle, trapped inside like your own perceptions, um, your own like limited abilities to perceive the world, and the goal is to sort of expand that and become and become more like God. To become, you know, like the concept is that you not to not to become not to take God's place or anything like that, but the the concept is that. There's some part of you, there's some soul that's part of this larger thing and it's trapped inside this body that is very limited and your goal is to sort of like start 
feeling, perceiving what you are as a soul rather than as a, as a person. Mm-hmm. So, like, what does death sort of do to all these things? Like, yeah. if, you, if you die and science is all there is, right? Um, well, if, if you die and science is all there is, then all there is to do is basically just live your life as best as you can. Yeah. Which just goes back to basically trying to figure out what you care about, what you can actually do to contribute to society, what you consider worthwhile in life. Yeah. And doing those worthwhile things. Yeah. But there's also sort of like this out clause to that, which isn't that interesting to me. Like, if there's really nothing else beyond life, and the only thing that matters is what we do until we die, um, then the universe really isn't that interesting to me. Mm. So that's really like the only, like... I, I think I have just naturally a very scientific mind um, in terms of just how I approach things and how I question things. But to me, like, there has to be something more. And not because, like, I think it, I need it to justify my life or anything, but because I'd rather sort of look for it and have it not be there than not look for it. That's interesting. Yeah. Right? Because if you, if it's not there and you look for it, then it really makes no difference. Yeah. But if because it is there and you don't look for it... Yeah, if, if, it's, if it's not there and you look for it, then it's as much of you... If it's as much as of you spending your time doing what you think is meaningful and interesting as anything else you could do in life, which is all that there is. Yeah. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and I'm not speaking of, like, any specific God, you know? Like, maybe all there is is just sort of like an elegant... an elegant sort of rule set to the universe. Maybe the universe is what's really interesting mm-hmm. like the universe as a whole yeah but for there to be nothing beyond that for there to be nothing to figure out for there to be nothing to sort of like nothing waiting for us beyond just the end of life that's just not an interesting viewpoint and i don't think and if in what's weird what's interesting is like you said if you're within that if you believe that then there's really no harm in sort of assuming there is mm-hmm. um as long as you know you don't let yourself do crazy things i mean yeah like as long as you understand like sort of limitations and social contracts and like what you owe to your fellow human being and that everybody is has just as much right to search and look and 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 have a comfortable life to do that as you do um but the next the next one is where i kind of run into some trouble like god as a judge right yeah that is not so interesting to me specifically because if what's being offered is happiness versus torture, like, I'm not looking for happiness in life. Like, I'm Mm -hmm. not trying to extend that. Like, I'm not trying to avoid good times, like, avoid good times ending, you know? Like, I'm I'm not trying to, like, preserve, like, the the happy stuff and avoid, like, being poked with whatever. Like, let's assume that, like, it's unimaginable torture, like, it's unimaginable pain. Like, I can't even fathom how bad it is and like i'm you know like i can't even understand like how the thing that i'm just sort of like brushing off like maybe it's just so painful that like i would regret you know having said these things and not trying to you know get into heaven or avoid hell or whatever still at the bottom of all of that is basically just a simple test for following simple rules that ends in either happiness or unhappiness and 
that whole concept of God as a tyrant is not that appealing to me. Because if we're talking about actual God and there's absolutely nothing we can do about it, except sort of like buy for happiness or unhappiness, then I don't actually care that much about one or the other. Like, neither of them, like, happiness isn't that much more interesting to me than eternal getting poked by a, you know, a stick or burning in hell or whatever the case may be. Like, like pursuing your life based on a rule set just so you can have happiness after death seems like a complete waste of time to me. Part of what I find difficult to reconcile is that these tests don't seem particularly interesting to me from a philosophical perspective or a um, even like a game design perspective. <laughs> Honestly, it seems like they work fairly well as moral structures and, and a lot of them align with what we consider you know, moral or amoral, but a lot of them also don't. And if we're talking of, of religion as, as basically just the foundation for morality, then I think an evolving morality is more effective than Such one a that's just one. yeah, and one that's rooted in examples and and worldviews that existed you know thousands of years ago. I think the world is changing in ways that the old world examples don't map very well to. Yeah. So even if the people who wrote these things were somehow like omniscient and you know saw and, and wrote a single book that answers questions for all phases of human civilization, we're not omniscient. So we're struggling to interpret those things. Mm -hmm. So one way or another, it, it, it just seems limited. So neither the tests, nor the reward, nor the, the disincentive, nor, nor that version of like God seems that interesting to me. Yeah. It's probably like the least interesting of the bunch, although there is a lot of very powerful philosophy and, and moral takeaways from all of those writings. Yeah. Um, I think if you approach those things from like a more open-minded sort of scholarly viewpoint, you can take a lot away from those things. I mean, obviously they've served humanity for a long time. They've caused a lot of trouble too. I mean, if we're being purely objective, like a lot of wars have been waged and a lot of people have died for the sake of, you know, Both preserving systems, and yeah. spreading these religions. But, you know, a lot of good has come from it too. But the thing that's most appealing to me is the third system, which is that there's this whole thing, like outside of our sort of limited time as humans, that has some kind of consciousness outside mm -hmm. of us. And we're parts of it, but we can't quite feel it, or, or we're sort of limited by our human interactions, and it's kind of weird to think of like this as like a, a phase to be put into. You know, again, from a game design perspective, it's kind of strange to basically put souls in human bodies and give them all these limitations and then be like, all right, now your job is to figure out a way out of it. Um, <laughs> But it still makes the most sense. Like it's still the most like sort of appealing, because the idea there is that you're basically trying to understand more. You're trying to feel and 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 know more of what's out there and yeah. what's out. And what's out there is 
interesting. It's fundamentally interesting. It's deep, it's nuanced, it's vast, it's interesting. And what I think of regarding, you know, the enlightenment or however people call it, isn't like an end, but a beginning. It's sort of a paradigm shift of thinking that it's like, I mean, we can only sort of draw parallels to it and, and metaphors and things like that, but it's kind of like, you know, that first moment when like Isaac Newton realized that gravity existed and all of a sudden his whole world changed, like his way of looking at everything around him changed. And moments like that have happened. We've all had moments like that, just like these epiphanies where you just have this massive shift in the way you see things because of this little thing that just opened up inside you mm. that gives you a whole bunch of insights. Whether that's, you know, learning a new language, learning a new philosophy, learning a new way of looking at things. And that's just kind of what I what I picture that to be. That That version of alignment isn't just like, you know, you just get everything all at once. It's like, now you just have a different lens to look at the world through, but there's still a lot to look at. And there's a lot to absorb and understand and think about and a lot that you have to sort of ask yourself about your place in the world. That's kind of what I see that goal is like, if that were to happen to someone, they would question what their role is on the planet or in the world and would come to a different conclusion. And they would just end up, you know, because. I don't know, I mean, if you believe any of that stuff, if you believe any of the things that have been written by people that were supposedly enlightened, it's not like they just took off, you know? It's not like some beam of light shone down and they just left. Like, they stuck around and they, and they did things. And you have to assume, like, well, they just got a better idea of what they're supposed to be doing. Mm -hmm. But the sense is that there's something more, there's something outside, like, you know, like, Beyond like life, beyond just when we die, like what is there, right? Yeah. And that's why I think of this as just like a spectrum of possibilities and you just have to figure out like what, what possibility do you actually want to explore? And looking at it this way, I mean, I just, it seems pretty clear that, um, you know, I mean, are you just free to choose from any of these three or any, any others that, you know, I'm not aware of or may not have heard of, but it seems like none of them is really asking you to just hardline pick a very specific thing and this, this is how all of life is supposed to be. Like, there's an underlying choice there. Yeah. And, you know, most of them actually kind of overlap. Yeah. Like, you can, you can be moral in many of the ways that, like, the stricter religions expect you to be and still be asking questions, um, looking for things, and still you know, try to do what a scientist would do in, in a strictly sort of lifespan moral sort of way, a, a social moral thinking sort of way. Yeah. Because all those things are necessary. I mean, like all those things at the end of the day lead to more stability, a happier society, people having time to think. Mm. But I do think as far as where, where death comes into all of this, I think death gets kind of an undeserved bad rap a little bit yeah because some of the most worthwhile questions in life get answered when you die one way or the other that's not to say you should rush towards death or you know it certainly doesn't mean 
any kind of violence or anything makes sense because if you believe in any of these, um, I mean, if you believe in any of these, or even if you are understanding the possibility that like all any three of these or any one of these might be true, you have to sort of like let people live their lives and learn whatever they can because almost every one of these things, like philosophy you could take paints life as a thing that is worth living that you're supposed to learn as much as you can through but there's got to be more and like if there isn't then in many ways like we don't really matter that much yeah yeah well i mean thinking about those three kind of categories of ways of approaching and thinking about death it's interesting to think about them in terms of um, like what do they what do they mean for how people live their lives so I mean I think like obviously they all have different merits and are, are valid and stuff but um, like living as if there's nothing after you die is totally fine but it's kind of like what I was saying about how there's like lessons you can learn one way or the other you can approach that in really different ways and I think some people don't necessarily need to exist within the structure of a religion or philosophy to be moral, and they just have, you know, they value morality in their life, even if they think of death as a totally scientific thing that's just nothing after you die. But yeah. then it's also possible, it seems like, to learn the opposite lesson, which is what you said, which is just to look for your own, your own like, selfish fulfillment in your life because... It's pretty, like, it's kind of nihilistic as a worldview. It can be. It really depends on how well thought out your worldview is. Um, and this, again, goes back to balance. If you are short-sighted or if the thing that leads you in a certain direction leads you to, to sort of get yourself in trouble, to do things at the expense of other people, to cause other people pain, if those things feel pleasurable enough in the short term and you're not unable to think long term then yeah absolutely you can be led in those directions mm -hmm. but i think a lot of that just comes from a lack of foresight a lack of clear thinking and a lack of balance i think you know you just see it like in movies people talk about it all the time about just drug addicts chasing that first high because it's not the same mm -hmm. like it's always like you just there's this thing that it makes you feel a certain way and then you keep trying to chase it yeah you keep trying to replicate it right and like in a lot of ways, games and, and a lot of human um, like sort of entertainment mediums are built around that thing where they'll give you a thing and then you just kind of like keep going back to it as like this weird form of nostalgia or like, you know, you went to this specific fast food chain because your parents took you there when you remember it being good times or whatever. And now it's just like built into part of you that you go into like... That's really funny. That reminds me of um, something I remember from childhood, but I don't know if I was like... I think I must have been 9 or 10 or something. And when we were kids, you and I and our other two brothers would go out and like make bad food decisions a lot, slash until do that. <laughs> and I think we went to the movies, and it was like fun growing up with three older brothers because I got to like go do fun stuff with you guys. But we went to the movies, and then I think we went out to In-N-Out afterwards. It was like 2 in the morning or something. And I remember that as like a really happy memory because... I got to like go stay out late and like do stuff I don't usually do and go to the movies and hang out with you guys. And I remember at In and Out, you were like, "Hey, like, 
try not to associate this with the food. <laughs> like you said something like that and it kind of stuck with me where you were like, hey, like you're happy and you're having a good time, but try not to think like it has to do with like this, the, the money we spent or the food we had or like that kind of stuff. And um, I still think about that. Like, I mean, I make like bad decisions about like, uh, like I want like a cheap kind of like pleasurable feeling I'm gonna go get some fast food or something but I think I question it like a little bit more yeah it's hard to avoid I mean that stuff is is absolutely like immediate gratification and gives you like carp running or stomach ache later but that's later yeah <laughs> right and especially when you're in the middle of like something stressful or difficult or challenging or unpredictable like just kind of messy and scary like most creative things tend to be it's very easy to go like i just i just want something good to take my mind off of this and oh yeah yeah you want to make those bad decisions yeah yeah well, bringing it back to like it's interesting we talked a lot about balance because one of my favorite movies or trilogies is before sunrise before sunset before midnight and i think in the second one they have the whole the whole movie is just ethan hawk and julie delphi walking around having conversations and I think at one point they had this one conversation about, um, oh, Ethan Hawke was saying like, yeah, you know, it's interesting. They did this study where like people generally, big life effect, uh, events don't, don't have as big an impact as you would think about on um, people's like basic intrinsic kind of temperament and way of looking at things. And so... He gave the example of someone who, so he's like, so basically like someone who's like basically kind of like a curmudgeonly unhappy person who wins the lottery might be really happy or have a different way of looking at it for like six months and then basically level out to the way they were before. Whereas you have somebody who's like really happy and positive and gets into a bad accident that impacts the way, you know, their health might be really depressed for a while and then basically level out to the way they were before. And that was kind of interesting because I could feel that happening with myself with this diagnosis before we got, even got into the treatment stuff. But just in the couple weeks of the diagnosis when I didn't know what it was going to mean for like my life expectancy or that stuff, my first kind of reactions were, like I said, like, man, I've wasted a lot of time. I got to like figure out the things I want to do. But like really quickly, like I was having these conversations with some friends and coworkers who were like talking about tattoos. And I was like, yeah, you know, I've always kind of wanted to get a tattoo. I'm going to get a tattoo. <laughs> and I was like, you know, I didn't get a tattoo. But, and I was like, yeah, you know, like I always wanted to kind of travel, but, but like I never did. Cause it seems like, you know, it's, it's a lot of money and like time and stuff. And, and I think I'm just going to like, after this treatment, I think I'm just going to go spend a lot of time traveling, burn through my savings and stuff. And all these like short term things that I just thought would be like fun and interesting, but they weren't, I think the things I was coming up with, they, were, they weren't even that meaningful to me. I don't know. They were just stuff that was like, these are life experiences that would be like capital L, capital E, life experiences. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and it didn't even take very much time at all for me to like, like a couple of weeks. I was like, ah, I don't really want a tattoo. And then like, like I had this conversation with these people, with this older couple at the NIH who were really, really friendly. They're, like, in their 70s or something. And they were talking about how they, their, like, life passion is traveling, and they spent so much of their time traveling. They've been to so many different countries. 
and that was really meaningful for them and they were like well this you know the wife had cancer and they were both really old so they were like well you know even if we pass now like we're happy with our lives I was like that's cool that's really awesome and that kind of made me realize like that's really cool but like travel isn't necessarily that for me I don't know why I just jumped to that well it's common I mean in, in society we just think of travel and adventures as this thing that is universally commendable like yeah like viewpoint expanding like this thing that is supposed to yeah 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 but it's weird because it's I I don't want to discount that like I still um like there's part there's part of that mental shift that that happened to me that I want to hold on to because I think I have a tendency to think too long term and then I don't like really like allow myself to take risks and stuff even if there is stuff I want to do yeah, sure. So it's a balanced thing. But. Well, there's a couple points there. One is that I think travel might be that for some people, but it's not that for yeah, people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not that for me. Like, I've yeah. never been a person who, like, wanted to travel. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's weird because it comes up in conversations a lot, and that's just, like, the thing that is just... It's almost like like a, it's its own metaphor for wanting to go and, and look and mm-hmm. search. But searching you know, in the world in, in many ways is, um, is that sure? <laughs> like if you're out there and you're actually experiencing new cultures, like you probably are doing some of that good stuff, but that's not the only way to do it. It's probably not even the most effective way to do it mm-hmm. for a lot of people. It's the most, one of the most fun to talk about ways to do it, yeah. <laughs> you know, and it gets kind of like lionized and has these golden rays coming out of it every time it's sort of like gets depicted in any kind of movie story painting whatever Mm -hmm. but um i think it's important to sort of uh know what those things are for yourself and what challenges are for you versus like whether it's just sort of unnecessary for you and things that you would feel like you're not getting that much out of Mm -hmm. um i think that stuff is intensely personal and it's important to know like what things matter for you yeah um the other thing that I think is a big deal is when you talk about um, the kind of people, you know, like big big events, like when you talk about big events on different kinds of personalities and how they just go back to the way they are, I think you start talking about brain chemistry and, and things like the way people are just kind of naturally predisposed. And that can be, that can be, Genetic, it can be brain chemistry, it can be habits, it can be psychological, yeah. and all of these things are important to like acknowledge and fight against. Hmm. Um, I think it's really important to sort of know the type of person you are and always keep an eye on the type of person you want to be. Yeah, if you're a person who's, who's really well-adjusted and some bad event happens to you and you're able to, you know, after a period, go back to being like really well-adjusted and... You don't really need a drastic change in your life to sort of like put yourself back together. That doesn't necessarily mean you shouldn't go out and travel. Like yeah. just because you're able to cope or just because you're able to like regain your footing doesn't mean that like you shouldn't go out and do this other thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like right. likewise, just because you're like this super sort of like depressed person and like really set in your in, in your daily things and your hobbies all exist in your basement or something like you just have a train set and you have like I don't know um, you're into some football team or something like that and all you care about is like you know what happens in the World Cup or what happens in 
the Champions League and some drastic thing happens and you, you just like freak out and think like man I need to I need to change my life I need to do something I'm just I'm just here all the time that doesn't necessarily mean you should go travel yeah yeah that's right? a really good that's a really good way of putting it yeah so it's it's really just like a, an active question you have to ask yourself it's like how many of these things are sort of like my habits and they serve a function they are tied to sort of like the city I'm in or the language I speak or the job I do or any of this stuff and how many of these things are things that like I genuinely care about and when you know I fight for these things in my life like I I I fight to to preserve some free time that I can spend doing these things and I and I you know put effort and 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 money and time and resources into pushing these things forward and you can't just base that off of like what your personality is at any given time like those are things that is like really important to be like conscious of yeah so yeah I think that's that's the stuff where you can't settle for staying on track. That's the stuff you have to be acutely aware of and self-conscious of. Yeah, big life events are weird because you, you, kind of what you're saying is like you shouldn't really trust them because, or at least kind of what I'm thinking is you shouldn't really trust them because I felt like, I felt like for me the cancer diagnosis was like this this big force that knocked me in a direction as just a reaction that I had to it. And I don't think the reaction was that meaningful, to be honest. But, like, it's more meaningful to be, like, like like you said, I'm feeling emotionally and psychologically pretty good right now, but it's meaningful to not... It's important, I think, to not be, like, okay, well, I'm not going to evaluate anything because of that. Yeah, I mean, it just comes down to what do you want to be doing, you mm -hmm. know? Like, these big things that happen to you are at the very least useful for, yeah. as, a, as a pretext for, like, hey, I want to make a change. Like, people will give you that, right? Yeah. They'll give you the room to make whatever change you want to make. But it's kind of misleading, right? Because you don't need that. At any yeah. given moment, yeah. you could say, like, hey, I, right. I want to do this. I want to go out and change this thing. Or I want to, yeah. you know, whatever, whatever you have in your mind. But I think that's really what it comes down to is, like, people are very um is very difficult to be conscious it's very difficult to really be aware of your options your choices like what things you're doing just because you've done them before versus yeah. like what things you're actually doing because you want to and yeah yeah spoiler alert but yeah like it said in like in the last episode of westworld and anthony hopkins were like most humans are in a loop it's not just the robots there's so many things in our lives that are a loop. And I think loops are fine, but it's like you said, it's, it's just important to not get on autopilot too much. Well, the scary thing for me is I think we are, like our minds are extremely powerful. Our minds are powerful enough to drive on autopilot, to yeah. work on autopilot, to have relationships with other people on autopilot, to um, do scientific work, to have epiphanies almost on autopilot. Mm -hmm. So actually like consciously driving decisions is really difficult. Yeah. 
like I felt like I was approaching that a couple times in my life where, you know, like I'd just weird things. Like I'd be in the passenger seat of a car, you know, with dad driving and I'd look at the, the mirror and just kind of like catch like part of my face and like the mountains in the background and it would just get me thinking about just in a, in a strange way of like, where am I? Like, what is this? Mm-hmm. And like those moments where I just felt in a different way conscious, I can count those on one hand. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> we, can, we could have this entire conversation on a pilot where I'd just basically be repeating things that I've said to myself or written down, jotted down in like little notepads to myself. Yeah. And it wouldn't be that hard. Like it takes a lot of energy. It takes a lot, and you have to you have to dive in. Like, and, and you might not come out sociable on the other hand. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like a scary proposition, right? And there's like levels of that. But I think I think it's very very easy for people to just kind of like repeat a pattern, especially when things are just so easy. You know, I think that's one of the the main things that like these life events like. give you is just something difficult to climb over yeah and just that that fear that like that exertion just reminds you like hey i like these muscles ache you know like i wait i have muscles yeah (laughs) like what the hell is this yeah and i think it's very very easy like it's especially in modern you know modern day where Everything is sort of like prepackaged and kind of like served in, you know, small sizes with good flavors and everything, like hour-long segments of TV that are serialized and, you know, give you the characters you're comfortable with. It's like, it's very, very easy to just kind of like go and repeat patterns. It's, it's a hard thing to like be able to ask yourself what you really want. And I think a big part of it is because at the end of the day, most of the things that are really worth pursuing are not easy and don't necessarily feel great right off the bat. You know, probably, I think that's probably one of the rules is that worthwhile things take effort to understand. Like, that seems like a one-to-one thing, right? Like, if it's a small little insight it's easy to understand but it's not that worthwhile like to really understand a complex system takes a lot of effort and and a lot of time and you might not you know feel that great 10 steps in or three steps in or something like taking the first step is hard taking the 10th step is hard at some point like you can train yourself to keep going but there's a couple like stumbling blocks along the way like the first step is hard for sure you know, then you might feel good for it. I haven't taken the first step, the second step, that might be good. But 10th step, that's when it gets hard again. <laughs> that's when it's like, yeah, okay, I'm really far away. And I'm not having like that first time thrill anymore. This is, you know. Mm. But it, I mean, it still just comes down to what is worth doing. And whatever you, your viewpoint, like however long you think you have to live, if you think it's from now until the end of your life and that's it if you think it's from now until you know the end of your life as long as you follow those rules these rules and then you get rewarded or if it's from now until you know the end of your life and then you kind of get exposed to 
what what more there is and hopefully you know gradually take more steps um as like something more than just a body as a soul like what whichever of these viewpoints you take the question is still what is worth doing yeah and i mean i remember like when i was you know when i was first thinking about death and all these scary things like as a little kid i asked dad you know like like how, how are you you know how are you not scared of death i asked him basically about that i was like how you know death is like a scary thing and he told me you know the story that it is part of a book on ramakrishna it's called the parable of the farmer and it's so the story goes the farmer has one son and as the son grows older the man and his wife grow fond of the son they start to love him very much um he's very wise he's very kind he's a good person and one day while the farmer is out working the field one of his friends tells him that his boy is sick and by the time he gets home his boy has died and his wife is crying she's just distraught i mean she loved this boy he has it he and the man doesn't shed a tear so goes back to work you know the next day and doesn't shed a tear um and his wife asks him you know she accuses him why you know like our, our son loved us he was this wonderful boy why don't why can't you spare a tear for him you know why aren't you upset yeah. and he says well the day that happened i had a dream and in my dream i was a king and i had seven sons each of them you know stronger and better than the next they had they grew in knowledge and they grew in glory they grew in virtue they were you know best sons a, a best princes a, a, a king could ask for and then i woke up and they were gone and i don't know whether to cry for my son or these seven mm. and it's one of these stories that you know like you can intellectualize away and stuff and try to figure out what the point of it is and you know be like oh yeah i get it or whatever but that's not the point is re- repeat it to yourself think about it and over time it'll make sense like it'll become not just knowledge but it'll just become part of you it'll become who you are and this idea of like you know a single life like your own life or who's ever own life or just be- being the super important thing will decrease a little bit mm-hmm. cuz like no matter which of these things you take i mean there's a lot of ways to interpret that story but no matter which of these viewpoints you take or any other viewpoint you take like you can't like the universe doesn't revolve around you right so there must be like there has to be some sort of humility in seeing the world around you yeah and that's either a thing that makes you feel smaller or it's a thing that empowers you depending on how you accept it i think it's an empowering thing personally yeah i think so too and another thing that's helped me quite a bit is like goes back to you know perspective and balance but um if you go outside on a cloudy day and you look up long enough 
you can see the clouds move. Like, it doesn't happen immediately, you know, if you're on a mountain, you know, I don't know, skiing or something, or if you happen to live at high altitude, this is a lot easier. But, you know, pick a cloudy day anywhere in the city, go outside and look up, and wait until you can feel the clouds move. And that gives you a sense of how big the world is, and that you're not that big. And it's not to like belittle you or anything. I mean, the same thing happens if you're more patient, you can do that. You can go outside late at night with a clear sky, go someplace dark where you can see a lot of stars, even if it's just behind a building, you know, that hides the light from you. And just look up until you can see the stars rotate. And it takes a while. Like, it takes a while to see the stars move, but you kind of, you can see it a little bit. And that gives you a sense of scale. And the important thing isn't, like, to make you feel small. The important thing is to give you a sense of where you are in the world. It's like, this thing is big. <laughs> like, I'm a little thing in this very, very big thing. Which means I'm not that important, but it also means there's a lot of places I can go. Like, the world isn't just my room and my workplace and my car and, you know, the road I take every day or like the supermarket I go to. It's a big place. You have a lot of options. And simultaneously, whatever you're thinking about isn't that big a deal. I mean, nothing is. Yeah. <laughs> and you have a lot of options. There's a lot you can do. There's, yeah. you know. And it's funny, like, you forget. Like, this thing about go up and look at the clouds, like, you forget. Anybody does this, you know, they'll, they'll immediately see what I'm talking about. They'll just, they'll feel it. And then a year will go by. They'll feel like, oh, I don't have to do that again. I've done it. And they'll forget. <laughs> you just have to go do it again. Yeah. It's not a thing that you fix. It's a thing you have to keep an eye on. Like this whole who you are thing. <laughs> yeah, whole, whole who you are and where you are in scale thing. Yeah. Yeah, well that's... <clears throat> to bring it back to my situation and to kind of wrap things up, like, that's what that, that first phone call, I think, in retrospect, did and why it was so hard. It was like... <clears throat> it, like, shrunk the entire world down to my own experience and fear. And that became massive and like really hard to deal with. And there were a lot of things that then, like I, different perspectives and scale and stuff that I thought about that helped that, but that was part of why that conversation we had where you were like, I said I was scared. You said, why were you scared? It was helpful because just even like, oh, that's a question that I could ask was the broadening of the perspective that hadn't occurred to me before, you know? So thanks. <laughs> I, mean, I didn't do anything but you know it, I don't know I'm rooting for you thanks <laughs> thanks for joining me for episode 5 of Anna and the Harry Cells a documentary podcast series about getting a scary diagnosis and learning how to move forward special thanks to my brother Art for joining me to talk about the gloomy abyss helpful to have conversations that change my perspective a bit 
My story is close to wrapping up, at least for now. So join me next week for my final episode, and thanks so much for following along. If there's something you'd like to share, send me a message at AnnaAndTheHarryCells.com. I'd love to hear from you.